right, it's a, it's a big Sunday as we press into, as we say, our fall ministries and things start back up. We've been letting you know for some weeks now that this is the first week of sign-ups for a lot of opportunities in the life of the church. We'll be doing sign-ups for the next three weeks, uh, but don't wait till the end. Groups fill up, and, uh, and we would love to see you get plugged in. Um, we have this year, I think as we go into the fall, more small groups than we've had in some time. I don't know, maybe we have too many small groups. I'm hoping not. I hope as we sign up, I would encourage everyone to consider. Uh, you can walk through in there. There's groups for couples, groups for men, groups for women. There are anyone groups, and that's, you know, couples, singles, young, old, you know, just there's a variety of kind of groups. There, there's a variety of what they study. You'll see some of them are doing just straight Bible studies, some are studying them books, and there's a, uh, there's a crown Bible study this time. If you've never done a crown financial study, um, I would encourage you very seriously to consider the crown class. It's one of those uh, can be really life-altering as we change the way, particularly this morning as I preach on the last of the Deadly Sin series is on greed. And uh, one of the things that the crown does is really reorient our thinking about uh, money and, and our relation to it and what it means to be faithful with it. And if you've never done a study like that, I would encourage you to consider that. Uh, there's also going to be an evangelism small group led by J.D. and his wife, J.D. and Paula, uh, that, that we're putting some feet on. We're going to be doing a sermon series on, uh, on things that we need to believe to be unashamed witnesses for Jesus. And so the Sunday school, we're doing some, some how to give away your faith practical tools. And J.D.'s small group is, and Paula's small group is really going to be an opportunity to get your hands dirty, to, uh, to learn some of those tools and practice some of those tools and actually maybe put them into practice. And so um, lots of kinds of small groups, but then we just have our traditional small groups that are studying stuff. I encourage everyone to consider being in a group. There's also um, a couple of things. Well, with the home fellowship groups that we're doing, we have more home fellowship groups to sign up for this fall than we have ever. Uh, I think there are like nine of them in total. A couple of them are already full. There's, I think, seven of them out. One of them is a CCS. It's for you who have kids at CCS. It's a CCS uh, tailgate uh, football party group thing to gather. So you can look at that if you're in there, if that fits you. But other than that, there's another half dozen. Uh, they, are, they are designed to not compete with small groups. You can do both. I've always done both. The home fellowship groups are groups that meet once a month on like a Friday, Saturday in somebody's home. So it is totally like a, a, a flock fellowship time rather than a small group and uh, easily done together. I think they usually will meet several times in the fall and a three or four times in the spring, but they're Friday night fellowship. So those home fellowship groups are in there. I encourage you to think about those, get connected uh, that way. A um, couple of things that we're doing just slightly different this year. One is we are doing a walk-in group. And I don't know if that sign-up made it in there or not. I can run in and, and do. There is one group that we want to do on Sunday night that's geared toward inviting anybody on Sunday morning. Once small groups start and you're in October and you're halfway through a book and your group starts to gel and you feel like you've got enough people, it's hard to get new people plugged in somewhere. And we wanted to be able on every Sunday morning to say, come back tonight and join us and to have a place where that, that you could walk right in and, and it would fit. So there's going to be a group probably in 201 that uses video curriculum uh, that allows, uh, it's going to be taught uh, largely by uh, 
Steve Kessler, Steve and Martha Kessler are going to co-teach it. It'll be in 201, and it'll be video-driven, but that way you can walk in. There's no homework. If you were here Sunday morning, you can come Sunday night, walk right in, and get to know some people. Um, there may be some of you whose small group isn't going to work, and you might consider that group. We, we, don't, we want you to do small group. That's where I want you to be. Um, but we do need two or three couples in that walk-in group so that there's always a core of people in there so, you, so that if we invite visitors, they're not walking into an empty room. So if, if, if that's something that appeals to you, your heart is to reach out and to make people feel welcome at maybe where you want to go um, or small group's just not going to work and you want a place to walk into, consider that. Um, the ministry overview book, as you walk out, you'll see a, a bunch of them in the rack right there. The ministry overview book is a great, I didn't bring one with me. And, uh, and next week, we're going to do some vision time in the service to talk about the fall a little bit. But the ministry overview book is out. It has a schedule in it and has information about all of our ministries, and we'll, we'll touch it more significantly next week. But grab one on your way out. There's some there and some on the visitor table. Um, there'll be a few opportunities to sign up for ministries. We need people to sign up for choir, people to help with the sound and projection ministry. If that's something you're interested in, there'll be opportunities to sign up. We're looking for more tutors for the uh, task ministry. If that's something that you've thought about, you can stop and talk to Reed and consider signing up. There's connections, things that we need help with. We need help putting together a bonfire if we're going to do it this year. We want to we want to make a list of people who will take a visitor to lunch. So if somebody visits, we can send you their information and you can invite them to lunch the next week after church and that kind of thing. So 201 after the service, I'm going to invite you to go in there and take a look at all these things and get involved, plug in, get connected, uh, and serve. As we turn this morning, we've been doing a series through the summer on the seven deadly sins a list that is not... Uh, necessarily pulled directly from any one text of scripture, although the list is a scripture list and you will find them in in lists. It's kind of a pared down list. Find them in the works of the flesh in, in Galatians and elsewhere. But we've done a series of them and today is last but not least. And I come with a little fear and trembling as I have every week, partly because as I've studied it, I'm convicted. And as I put stuff together, I'm like, you know, who am I going to offend this week? You know, who, who am I going to uh, touch on this week? And it's, it's one of those issues that people will tell you, they'll argue with you about politics, they'll ask you your politics, and you can, you'll share, even if they're personal, you know, you can argue with people about religion, you can argue with people, but one thing people don't talk about is money. Don't ask them their personal things about money. You know, don't look too closely. They're not going to tell you how much they make and how much they give and what they do with it and how much they spend and what they do with this and how much that costs. And it, you know, we don't go there. You know, like that's off limits. That's personal. That's private. That's, you know, but the scripture talks more about money than about most other topics. Jesus talked more about money than he did about hell. It's hard to imagine. It's a very... It's, we have so privatized it, and, and yet Jesus seems to think it's something we should talk about and is very important and dangerous to us. Is it dangerous to us? I don't know. I got this in the mail yesterday. It's one of those things. I'm finishing my sermon on greed, and I get, this, I get credit card offers. I get half a dozen a week, and they vary. You know, here's, here's one. The black card, right? Six or eight pages, glossy pictures in the whole, you know, with the tagline, here we are, luxury without limit. Is this not America? Is, it, is this not our tagline? Is this not where we live? You know, and this, this card, this is it. This is my gateway 
you know, no limits. I bet they give me a limit, first of all. But number two, that limit will be somewhere down the road that I've bought luxury. And I wasn't limited by my income. You know, I'm not limited by how much money I actually have. I'm only limited by how much they'll let me, you know, there's luxury without limit. That's, that's greed. That's greed. It's what the scripture speaks about. It says that that is not the way the followers of Jesus think about worldly stuff. Here we are in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 11. Uh, I'm going to jump in and do a little bit in 17 to 19, but we're not going to read it. But we're just going to read 6 to 11 for now. Or maybe I will read it. I'll read both. 6 to 11. But godliness with contentment is great gain. It's profitable. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and we have clothing with these things, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich, to have luxury without limits, fall into temptation, into a snare, a trap, into many senseless and harmless desires, lusts, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered even away from the faith and have pierced themselves through with many pangs. But as for you, you, O man, O woman of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share, and thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, for an eternity, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life and wealth. The Word of God. Pray with me. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we come with fear and trembling because we know we live in America, because we know that that this is hard. We know that the wealth of this world is the number one rival for the love and service of the human heart. Oh my God, would you open our eyes and set us free that we might be your people wholeheartedly with an undivided heart, that we might serve you well. In Jesus' name we ask and we pray. Amen. We've been talking about the sins. Last week we talked about gluttony, and I said that gluttony is, you know, a lot as we think about these things, it's it's about our relationship with the Creator and how that shapes and determines our relationship with the creation. And, And we are to start with our relationship with God and help that to then deliberately and consciously and with spiritual insight in life and power determine our relationship with the stuff of this world. Romans 1 starts with the whole thing saying the wrath of God is coming because we suppress the truth. We have exchanged the glory of the immortal God with whom our relationship is primary and we've exchanged it for the glory of created things. And in a culture of abundance like ours, that is a danger, dangerous thing. And we, we talked about how overindulgence and overconsumption in any area of life 
it can be a problem for us. It can cause financial problems. It can cause health problems and, and can do damage to our bodies. It can do damage to our relationships. And it certainly, according to the Scripture, can do damage to our spiritual lives. It can break the body. It can strip the soul. And so Paul, as he thinks of these things, says all things are lawful for me. As I look at this world, as the passage says that God, it is God who provides us with everything to enjoy. You know, so all these things are lawful for me, but he says I will be mastered by none except for the Lord Jesus. And that's what this is all about as we talk about these things. It's about our relationship to the Lord Jesus, being mastered by him under his lordship as we think about everything else so that everything else comes under his lordship and serves. We use it to serve rather than we find ourselves serving this this moniker of of pursuing and loving and being caught up in what is the, the wave of American culture toward luxury without limits. So as we focus on greed, we're talking about an unhealthy relationship with money, with wealth. That's why a crown class, if you've never done it, helps sort that out at a deeper level. Uh, God's in the biblical perspective on, on everything from debt to, um, to our, our giving and to uh, our understanding. And I really like just a big picture of how the Bible talks about uh, God's lordship over all these things. The Bible and Jesus have much to say about it, more than about many other topics. Online Merriam-Webster Dictionary, and your quotes this week this week are going to be all messed up. The, the bulletin is packed with stuff, but I've moved them all around. It's one of those sermons that till this morning, it, as I shaved, I'm finishing, you know. Um, I, I don't know, it's just been really hard to pull. You know, I want it to be, but anyway, so they're all messed up, so you can find most of them in there. But the online Merriam-Webster Dictionary, which is I go for my definitions now, uh, says that greed is this. It's a selfish and excessive desire. It's selfish, four pieces of pie. You know, they're not all the same size. I get to go first, I take the big one. Selfish. Right, it's greed. You know, it's more than I need. It's, it's, you know, it's more. It's selfish. It's about me. It's about my piece of the pie, and that goes for all of the things. It's, it's a selfish and excessive desire, um, and it is about a desire. And we're going to look at that here in a second. It's about um, what we love and, and what we want, and and so there are the desires, and it's, so it's a selfish and excessive desire for some, for more of something than is needed. And it's interesting how many texts of the Bible, and as I looked at the Marian Webster, I really like that, because there are several actual verses in the Bible that actually speak to literally that phrase, more than is needed. Uh, there are Proverbs that speak to it. I had to limit the number of scriptures I put in here this morning in quotes. I mean, it's something that there's massive quantities. But, it's all, it, it, but there, there is this thing of, and he says it in here actually in verse 8. He says, if we have food and clothing with these, we'll be content. In other words, if I have what I need. And so greed has to do with, with this excessive desire, selfish desire for more than I need, for luxury, you know, and without limit. And it's hard in a culture of abundance because needs and wants get really confused. And in many parts of the world where they're barefoot and what they have on their back is all the clothes they have and they scrounge for their one meal that day, you know, we get confused. For me, one of the things that sorts out and, and, and it steps back in this whole thing, what do we need and what do we want? 
And if we can sort that out in meeting our needs and being really careful with the rest. But it wasn't, I spent seven weeks in India one summer, and it was one of those that as you get into the summer, you learn more and more and more of what you don't really miss and what you can do without. And there was no TV all summer, no cable, no cell phone. There was no, I mean, if I went today, there'd probably be cell phones, you know, but there were no, uh, the toilet was a hole in the floor that you squatted over. You know, they didn't have toilet paper. We brought our own. Uh, But, you know, we didn't use utensils. We ate with our fingers and then washed our hands. You know, you did and just all this stuff. There were no hair dryers. There were no this. There was no that. It It was very simple. I remember being in seminary, some of the happiest years of my life. We didn't have anything. We rented our garage-sailed house, and there was a time I never felt freer or happier than when things were simple. And we had what we needed. We had what we needed. We were happy. Our children were young, and it was good. But our relationship to created things in a culture of abundance, our needs fade, and our gratitude for them, and wants take control uh, of our lives in many ways, drive us, the relationship with things and especially with money. And God again and again warns us of the danger. And this passage doesn't actually use the word greed, where it's used many, many times in Scripture, but I believe it powerfully describes this dysfunctional relationship that we develop with the stuff of this world with the created things as opposed to the creator. And when he says what's at stake is godliness, isn't it? Verse 6, he says, but godliness with contentment, a godliness that includes contentment, that is part of our godliness, this contentment, he says, is, is a jewel. There's a, there's a great Puritan book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I think he pulls it from here, this idea that that godliness with contentment is profitable. He uses the word there, great gain, like you would use of monetary gain, of like accumulating wealth. That this contentment, this godliness with contentment, is a treasure. It's a jewel. And this jewel of contentment, he says, is more valuable than other kinds of worldly goods. Because what is at stake is how we think and feel about stuff. Our relationship. And see, the whole thing is our godliness. What he's saying is our godliness is affected by what we think and what we feel and what we do with money. Godliness has to do with how we've sorted that out in our soul. And it's fundamental because we live in this world and we live in this body. And it's what we know until we die. And a lot of the scripture, a lot of the New Testament is trying to help us to see You brought nothing into this world, you'll bring nothing out of it. And as as material as everything is and as important as it seems to you, you know what? There's things that are way, way more important than the material things that, that that we get our hands dirty with every day. And it's not that we shouldn't get our hands dirty, but it's that we should have a right relationship to them. What's at stake is godliness. Our lives for good or for bad will be shaped by the way we think and feel about money. So material wealth, he says, is tied to this current age. 
Right? Verse 7, we brought nothing into the world. We're going to bring nothing out of the world. There are no U-Hauls on hearses. I've been to a lot of funerals and done funerals. I've never seen a U-Haul. I mean, he's right. You know, you've heard that phrase. I mean, and it's true. And it tries to bring something home. We, we can't take it with you. You know, and there is something where, you know, the whole rich fool who gave barns and the barns weren't big enough to hold his stuff and he accumulated luxury without limits and he had to be bigger barns and he said, soul, take it easy and I'll do this. And, you know, and then God says, your soul is demanded of you today. And what's going to happen with all that that you spent yourself on? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his own soul? What's going to happen to all of that? What's the point of all of that? And the scripture again and again from Jesus to Paul says, store up your treasures in heaven, not on earth. Moth, rust, thieves, death. Temporal material wealth relates to this life only and it's not as valuable as the spiritual treasures that Christ offers us. And the point, this is the whole point of the story. I don't know if this came to me this morning. I mean, these things, I never know if they're going to work. You know, one of my favorite, you know, Charlie Brown's Christmas and the Grinch. Right? Isn't it the whole point of the Grinch story? The Grinch has got a heart problem. Too many sizes, too small, right? The whole thing. He's got a heart problem and he looks at, you know, the whole Christmas thing. And for him, it's all materialistic. It's all about the stuff, the presents, the decorations, the, the who feast and the great who beast or whatever it is and the all, all that stuff. And he thinks, you know, and if they didn't have that, if I took all that from them, you know, then they would be sad and they would know. And so there's this, this envy and this, I don't know, greed, but there's whole this materialism that he goes and he steals all their stuff. And they gather in the town square. And I'm going to say, I don't know what they're saying, because who this and who that, but they're speaking in tongues. I think they're worshiping. <laughs> right? They've gathered on Christmas morning, and they're, and they're singing, and they're holding hands, and they've got their faces lifted up, and they're, and they're singing. You know, whether there's one present under the tree, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We have what we need. Our family is here. We've got food and clothing and housing. You know what? The Grinch figured out that day. (laughs) You know, he learned something that we are still learning, which is why it's such a great parable for us of what goes on in the heart and the the constraints upon it and when it bursts those bonds of materialism. Contentment, this great intangible treasure, is a part of our godliness. And it's a treasure, he says, beyond any temporal and he says so in verse 9 that godly contentment is usurped by greed, right? In verse 9, it's the, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Verse 10, for the love of money is this root. And he says godly contentment is usurped by this desire for more than we need, this desire to accumulate and to experience the luxury that it can that it can buy. Um, <clears throat> the desire compromises our hearts. Right? And that's why I say we, it, it's a hard issue of our worship and it has to be sorted out in here. When our desires for godliness and our worship of God should reign, it's compromised by these desires. Our love for more than we need derail and sabotage our spiritual lives. Mammon is dangerous. You and I don't really believe that. Most of us don't really believe that. Mammon, I like that word. That's the Greek word. It's, it's you know, and they, when they put it in the King James, they just take the Greek word and transliterate it into English. It's a word that means something like wealth. 
And I like it because it includes, and I use our word wealth, because it includes money. But our wealth is so much more than our money. Right? We have so much stuff. It's dangerous. We handle it like a puppy. And we love it, hold it close. And we, you know, we handle it kind of like a puppy when the Bible says it's more like a venomous snake. You know, it's one of those things you can handle with the proper equipment and tools. It can be handled, but it needs to be handled with great care because if you're not careful, it will bite you. It will bite you and it will, it will poison you and it will damage you. And we don't see the danger in it. The scripture wants to give us. Look at verse 9 and 10, right? He says, those who desire to be rich, he says, they fall into temptation to sin. Temptation into a snare, a trap into senseless and harmful desires. The word there is epithumious lusts. It plunges people to ruin and to destruction. And then that desire to be rich, he parallels with the love of money. Right? Money is not the root of all evil. Again, it's the, the issue is a heart issue. The issue is spiritual. The issue is our relationship to money, how we love it or don't love it, whether we use it or serve it, or whether it is driving us or whether we are managing it kind of thing. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that people are wandering away from the faith. They're piercing themselves through with many pangs, with pain. They bring pain and destruction. That doesn't sound like a puppy, right? As we, we draw it near, it sounds dangerous, a necessary thing in the life of the world. It must be handled. We must all handle it. But I think what the Bible says is how you handle it is really important. The proper safeguards, because it wreaks havoc in the lives of people. God's not against wealth. I think you can read the Bible from beginning to end. It's very clear God is not against wealth. Um, He loves the rich. He loves the poor. And wealth, money, has great potential for good. You know how much good, you know, the use of wealth in the world could do if we had it and used it in the proper ways rather than some of the things described? The the amount of good that it could do is unimaginable almost. He's not against it. In 1 Samuel 2.7, which I'm somewhere in your bulletin, I moved it, um, it says simply this, it's the Lord, Yahweh, the God, covenant God of Israel, of the Bible. It is the Lord who makes poor and the Lord who makes rich. It is the Lord who brings low. It is the Lord who exalts. If it's the Lord who makes rich, right, he's not against it. And it's one of those things that humbles us and brings us to contentment. The Lord I mean, I know that frustration. I've spent half of my life, most of my life, you know, with, with just barely enough and that kind of thing. And every time I think, you know, because one of our, what's our goal? Our goal is to get ahead. And so that's been one of my goals all through life is to get ahead and through seminary and post-seminary and this stuff with little kids and braces and the car breaks and the thing. And every time you think you get a little bit and you get ahead, the car breaks. And it's like, really, Lord? You know, and then I need a new roof. And it's like, really, Lord? You know, is that what you want to, and then at some point you just have to say, is that what you want to do with your money? And it comes freely if you really actually just say, you know what, if that's what you want to do with your money, that's okay with me. And then I get, I find contentment, that rare jewel where God is the Lord of such things. And, and, and I can find contentment there and my, my things have risen and fallen. And, but it's that whole, money can be a great blessing, it can be a powerful and subtle temptation. And you don't have to be rich to have a problem with money. 
And I would venture to guess that those of us who don't have as much of it as we'd like have more trouble with or as much trouble as anybody who does. Because it is not money that's the problem, it's the love of money. You don't have to have it to love it, to want it, to crave it, to believe that if just a little more, if it's just a little enough, or if it's just, you know, if I could only get here, if I could only get there, then I would be generous, or then I would be whatever, or then I would be happy, or then I would be content. And God says, it's, it's not how much you have. It's the Lord who makes rich and the Lord who makes poor. It's our relationship to what we have and what we don't have. And we fall into the trap of thinking it will solve all of our problems. We're robbed of contentment, this jewel, right? And the problem is that money, this, this desire can hijack the heart by misplacing our love. And that way, I mean, it's a fascinating thing to say in verse 10 when he says it is the love of money. It's love. How much of the scripture is about love and what you love or you don't love? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. Right? And love your neighbor as yourself. Love these things. Love, pour your love here. Like all of your love, undivided heart kind of love here. And then, but don't love these things. You know, and there are things that, and usually when the Bible, when we love the things we shouldn't love, the Bible calls that idolatry. Right? When you've given your heart and your affection, in fact, it uses the, the, the image of adultery to, to illustrate it, giving your love rather than the one you're betrothed to or married to, to someone else. And this whole thing of who we love, whether we love the Lord with all of our heart and we are mastered by him and so money becomes a tool of my love for him and of his priorities and loving my neighbor as myself and fulfilling his purposes and his kingdom or whether it becomes a power in my life. In America, money is a power in our lives. Jesus says there in your bulletin somewhere, Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says this, no one can serve two masters. You either hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money, God and mammon. What an amazing passage. When you take it with this First Timothy, it's about, Jesus says it's all about love. See, you love your true master. And if you love God, you will give, you will be devoted to him and you will hate the other money, mammon. You will hate it in the same way you will hate your father and your mother and your brothers and sisters because you love Jesus first and, and foremost. And that love rises up and it's controlling power in your life. And that, you know, so in the same way, he says, if you love the one the Lord Jesus, God, and you serve him only, then you will, in some sense, hate and not be devoted to money. It falls into place. Because you can't serve two masters. The undivided heart, what we love, what we love, what do we love? And there's no quicker way to know what somebody loves than to see where they've spent their money over the last year. That's such a hard thing to say, such a hard thing to hear. We, we want to believe it, and then we don't believe it. And, and when we go look and we really see how much money have we spent on this, how much money we spent on that, how much money we've given, how much money we've given and how much money we've shared, and what this passage, as we'll see, really defines it. All of us believe this verse, that we cannot serve two masters, but none of us think it's a problem for me. 
Isn't that right? Keller brought that point out as I was reading. I listened to one of his sermons somewhere else. He says, you know, we all believe that verse, and we all will wrestle with some of these other sins, but, but when it comes down to it, we don't think that's a problem for me. Not me. Right? But why does he speak so much about it to his church? Over and over and over again. Keller says this, Jesus warns people more often about greed than about sex, and yet almost no one thinks they are guilty of it. I can't recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family or my soul or the people around me. Greed hides itself from the victim. The money God's modus operandi includes blindness to your own heart. And so none of us think we're greedy. But Jesus warns us, Greed hides in the deep crevices of our hearts just out of sight as we justify luxury without limits. So Hebrews 13 says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You you can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He says, when God is your treasure and when you trust God, you can be free and generous with your money. You can be content with what you have and generous with your margins. And so we come down and say, the godly person doesn't put any trust in wealth. Right, isn't that what he says in here in verse 17? Tell the rich, who, those who are rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, but also not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, because they are uncertain. The Lord gives and the Lord taketh away. It's about as clear a statement that the Bible gives us. It says we are to love the giver and not the gift. Right? Isn't that what he is saying? Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God. Don't love the gifts. Don't pursue the gifts like that. Pursue the giver. Love the giver. Trust the giver. And the giver may give you much, but when he stays where he should be, then we will do with that much what he wants us to do with it. But if it gets out of whack, and so Job, well, and this is why we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things, what we will eat, what we will drink, what we will wear, the needs and the necessities of life that that we all want satisfied. He says, seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, this godliness with contentment, and God will take care of the rest. And so it is that Job can do this. Job 121, somewhere in your bulletin, maybe it didn't make it. Job loses everything. And it says this, the Lord gave And the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. That's worship. That is a man who does not put his hope in wealth, but puts his hope in God. And when the wealth is gone, his hope remains. These are the who's in Whoville. When everything is taken away, their hope is not in in the gifts, but in the giver. And they still gather and worship. Without the gifts, without the treasures of this earth. And so my flesh and my heart may fail. The, world, the, the, the material things of this whole thing will fail. But God is my strength. He is my heart and my portion, not just now, but forever. I'm going to just cut to the chase. And therefore, a godly person aspires to be generous and not to be rich. Because I think it has to do with our relationship with money. 
Wealth is incidental. In Ephesians chapter 4, I don't think this did make your bullet. In Ephesians 4.28, I just read to you, it says this, Let the thief no longer steal. Now that goes in our list of things do not do, like, you know, the, the thou shalt not. And there's lots of lists of what not to do, and there are some things in there. But this is one of those that it takes you the full range. Thou shalt not steal, right? Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, let him work. Doing honest work with his own hands. Provide for yourselves. Provide for your needs. You know, that's important. And do the honest labor with your own hands. And then it says, so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. My friends, in a nutshell, I don't know how to... This has captured my heart in a way to say, you know, that is the thing. See, the whole thing is there. You who have been stealing... You should acquire your own luxury without limit. You know, you should go and work hard with your hands so you can have as much as everybody else, so, you, so that you can live high on the hog. You know, the message of the Bible is, is don't make wealth your goal. He says you want to work hard enough to not only meet your own needs, but that you would have the kind of margins that you can share with those who have need. That's godliness. Right? That, that, that is the, from beginning of end of the scripture, to care for the poor and the widow. And the widow was among the poor for, for their station in life and the loss of. And, and, the, and from all here is pure religion and undefiled before God and Father to look after the orphan and the widow in their need, you know, to meet them in their need. And this is this whole thing. Like, let this thief no longer steal, but don't just stop being a thief, become a giver. Right? Don't just stop taking, you know, but actually work hard enough where you can be like God himself and you can begin to give and to meet needs and to satisfy and to care for and to bless, to be blessed, to be that blessing in the life of someone else. Randy Alcorn says, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. You have to say in there, where are the lines? Everybody's going to say, okay, draw me a line. How much is too much? How much can I keep? And the issue is this. It's not how much you give, it's how much you keep. All right, that's the point of the widow's might, isn't it? And I'm going to preach that this fall. I'm going to talk about it. And so I'm not going to say much. But the widow's might, the whole point is, Jesus watches people put money in, all the middle class, and everybody puts their money in, and then the poorest person in the synagogue comes and puts two mites in. Jesus is shocked and astounded, and he says to them, you guys, did you see that? Did you see that? She gave, all these others gave out of their abundance. I could give $10,000, but if I got a million, it's nothing. Nothing. Doesn't change my lifestyle at all. Doesn't cramp my style. I'm still, you know, but if I've got $5 and I give three, Jesus says, that's something. A giver. Someone who gave what she had, whose, whose relationship to money was such that when she was in church and she was in worship, she was going to give. Everyone must decide in his own heart, not reluctantly, but not under compulsion. But God loves the cheerful giver. My friends, what is at stake is godliness. How we think and feel about stuff, mammon, Our treasure shows what our treasure is. And when our treasure is, when truly the only way any of this works 
is if you love the God, Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. None of it works. None of the Christian life really works unless we are by the, by the power of the Spirit and all of that truly trying to make that hierarchy where our relationship to our Creator, that He is Master. He is Lord. He is Savior. He is King. And everything I have, I will, I will sell everything I have to buy that field. Everything I have to buy that pearl, that treasure. And having that treasure, I can have nothing else and sing off into eternity like a who in Whoville. When God is our treasure, when he truly satisfies us, when he is truly trustworthy, when our hope is not in the world but in God, And we are content. We are at peace. I'm going to leave you with this question. Paul Tripp's question, I'm not sure where it is in your bulletin, it's in there somewhere. Paul Tripp asked this question. I want you to take it home and after lunch, think about it. Make some coffee, put your feet up, think about it. When you get up tomorrow and have a quiet time, pull the question out, think about it. Do you tend to spend more than you should while telling yourself that you would give more if you could. This is in a list. There's a little book called Sex and Money. I love everything Paul Tripp writes. There's 10 of them out there on the table, $3 each. Uh, you can give it to me at the door if you want one of the books. But he, this is a quote from that book, and it's out of a list of questions that I found really helpful. But that is a question for us, right? Do we, do we tend to spend more than we should while telling ourselves we'd give more if we could? Right? We crave more than we need, so we spend more than we should, and we cannot serve two masters. And it really is about who's running the show. Have we set apart Christ as Lord? Or have we fallen under a foreign power, given our hearts in places we should not? You draw the lines. It's hard to draw the lines. Pharisees like to draw lines. But let God talk to you. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we confess that we have a love affair with the things of this world. We have a love affair with, uh, with money and the things that it can buy. We all want it, and we all want to get ahead, and we all want to be secure, and we, we find security in the things that we have and own and have hoarded and saved and laid up. Father, in all these things, there is a level of wisdom, and yet in all of these things, there is a danger. God, have mercy on us and help us just to be wise, wise as serpent, innocent as doves. Pray, Father, that you would help us to consider these things deeply and powerfully, to hear Jesus, to hear your word, and to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. For it is in his name that we plead and ask. Amen.